Well, we are in the home stretch now. We have seven more days until Christmas. And while that thought might send some of us into a state of worry over all the things we have to get done, I can think of all the rooms in my house that need to get cleaned, and it's every room in my house. I want us all to take a deep breath. It will all be okay. Everything will get done. That's a statement of faith on my part. As we get closer and closer to Christmas, I get, and I get more and more into the holiday spirit, my mind drifts back to Christmas's past and fun memories of childhood. When I was a kid, and still even now, my whole family gets together to decorate my parents' Christmas tree. Sometimes that meant waiting until two days before Christmas, when my older brother and sister were coming home from college, so that we could all be together to trim the tree. But assuming everyone was home for Christmas, we have all gathered, and still do, to decorate the tree at my parents' house. My older brother gets to hang his special toy soldier ornaments up very high to guard the angel. I get to hang my disco ball and the musical instrument ornaments, which at this point is ironic if you've ever heard me sing. We eat chips and we listen to Randy Travis and Garth Brooks Christmas CDs. Yes, we still use CDs. On Christmas Eve, my extended family always gets together to have pizza after church. And before the night is over, we throw reindeer food out onto the lawn so that Santa will know to come to our house. And on Christmas morning when we were kids, we would be allowed to wake up my parents at 7 in the morning, no earlier, and the kids would all sit at the top of the stairs while my mom made her coffee, which we must have had the slowest coffee pot ever. Then my parents would tell us how many steps we could go down, and we would go down one by one, stealing steps every now and again. My stories of Christmas's past might sound like some of your memories, or maybe not at all, um, but I think if we went around, each of us would have stories of idyllic and heartwarming Christmas's past. But here's the thing. If you could actually come and see what it was like what it was really like when we decorated the tree, or what it's still like even now, you'd see other things too. You'd see my siblings and I whining about how many ornaments we still had to hang. You'd see us plead with my mom to get rid of more and more ornaments. Can't we add this one to the reject box? The reject boxes that made their way to my house and now adorn my tree. You'd see us fighting with each other over who has done more work and who is slacking. If you came on Christmas Eve, you'd see people bickering about having to do the reindeer food at all. Some years you'd see us throwing it at each other. <laughs> which is hilarious, but not idyllic. If you came on Christmas, you'd see cute traditions mixed in with siblings fighting, disappointment with presents, tired and overtired and over, over, overtired children. And at the end of the day, kids who say more about the presents they didn't get than enjoy the presents they did. You'd see a normal Christmas. Cute, heartwarming traditions and regular humanity in equal measure. 
The memories and stories we tell about Christmas paint a rosier pictures, picture than our realities. And that's okay. Our preparations for Christmas have expectations of a Christmas that will be rosier than the Christmas we will actually get. And that's okay too. It's normal. It's so normal, it's what we do with the Christmas story found in the Gospels. When we picture the story of the birth of Jesus, we have this idyllic, beautiful picture of nativity scenes and Christmas carols. I have a one-month-old at home. There is no such thing as a silent night. And so this morning, I want us to look at this story as it really is, full of humanity and drama and messiness. We're reading today out of Matthew's first chapter. It's printed in your lifeline, displayed on the screen behind me, uh, and it's in the Bible too. And if you don't have a Bible but want a Bible, we give them away for free at the welcome table. Matthew begins, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now our Advent series this year, has been about God's promise of salvation that comes to bring meaning and purpose to our lives. Often our lives can feel like soap operas. Advent is about the guiding light that comes to free us from our guiding light. I'm still not tired of that line. And again, go ahead, post it on Facebook. Hashtag Spirit and Life Church. But the ultimate irony of this series is that it is the story of Christ's birth that is the most soap operatic of the whole Gospels. And yet it is precisely how salvation comes. God literally enters into a soap opera and accomplishes salvation. Our scripture begins so bluntly and so clearly and so scandalously. This is how the birth of the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now these final few words, through the Holy Spirit, are a faith claim, and one that foreshadows other parts of the story. But if we were to write the story from Joseph's perspective, from Joseph's point of view as he is experiencing it, this is how the story begins. Mary is pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant. Period. Full stop. Joseph is engaged and his fiancée is pregnant. Friends, this literally is the plot of a soap opera, and I know that because it literally was a plot arc in the first season of The O.C. Spoiler alert. 
The OC is a soap opera that millennials like me watched that happened on, on uh, 8 p.m. on Fox a few years ago. Not during the day, but still a soap opera. Let's be real. And yes, I watched it. Safe space. In our time, this news is dramatic. In ancient times, it was downright scandalous. It is a violation of the social order and convention and ethics for an unmarried woman. The gospel tells us that Joseph decided to divorce her quietly. For us, in our time, this might seem reasonable, maybe harsh, but reasonable. Joseph had, but, but for Joseph in ancient times, staying with her was not an option. Joseph had two choices. Expose her to the community, at which point she could be, probably would be, stoned for adultery. Or do it quietly and ensure that her life would be spared. Joseph's was the gracious choice. I say this in order to point out that Christmas is messy. American culture loads Christmas with expectations. Everything must be perfect. The directions, or the directions, the decorations, that's that, that the decorations, I can, I can do this, must be just so. The house must be spotless and pristine. The dinner must be cooked to perfection. The children must be on their best behavior. And we apply these same expectations of perfection to the gospel narrative. But Christmas is messy. The first Christmas was messy. Our Christmases are messy. The way the Messiah comes into the world is a soap opera. But God steps right into the middle of that soap opera. God comes to Joseph in a dream. God tells Joseph that God is working. God is acting. God is there. God is with him. Amid all our less than perfect, perfect Christmases, the Christmas trees that are not quite as perfect as we want them to be, the lives that are not quite as perfect as we want them to be, God does something new. God comes into our messy Christmas. God comes into our drama. God comes into our lives and says that he is with us. God says he is working. God says he is here. The angel comes to Joseph and tells him that God is in this, that God is right in the middle of this mess, at which point Joseph has a decision. Joseph can be a slave to the soap opera, or he can trust the angel's message. In order to be saved from the soap opera, Joseph has to trust this strange news, that the child is from the Holy Spirit, that he already has a name, Jesus, and that he will save people from their sins. He needs to trust that God is at work in order to be saved from the soap opera that he is living. And so, friends, do we. Christmas offers us a choice. We can believe that God is joining us in our mess, that God is joining us in our world, that God is joining us in our lives. We can believe that God is here, God is working. We can believe that God is in this. Or we can be consigned to the soap opera. But our salvation, our hope, comes in trusting those that bring the message that God is here. What begins here? What God announces at Christmas is a human being who will somehow show us a different way to be. And that begins at the child's conception. To understand that, we have to talk about one of the most unbelievable claims of the Christian faith, the virgin birth. 
all that right after this. Sorry. In order for Joseph to follow the angel's command and stay with Mary, he needs to believe two mutually exclusive statements. One, Mary has been faithful to Joseph, and two, Mary is pregnant. Given our scientific, biological understanding of the way the world works, only one of those can be true. When the angel tells Joseph what he must do, the angel doesn't go into any details that might help him out. The angel simply says that what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Maybe Joseph could have used a little bit more. Help a brother out, angel. But I think the lack of factual information is itself the point. We who live in the scientific age tend to reduce and equate truth to facts. But when facts are defined as those things that we can hear, see, touch, taste, etc., things we can understand, we become trapped. When we reduce the virgin birth to a factual claim about Jesus' biological and historical parentage, we wall ourselves off from the mysterious truth that God is offering. I know the intent of it is to prove that Jesus was not just a normal human being, and for Jesus to have two human parents would mean that he was a normal human being like the rest of us. But to deny, and so to deny the virgin birth is to deny the incarnation. But when we use the virgin birth in this way, as a proof text for something special about Jesus, we lose our ability to understand what it means for Jesus to be fully human as well. The Christian church has said for centuries that Jesus is fully God and fully human. However, that is not a truth that can be understood by applying this to Jesus' DNA. Instead, the words of Matthew's Gospel, that the child is from the Holy Spirit, is perhaps the best way to understand the virgin birth. Throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit shows up as a catalyst for a new thing that God is doing. The early Christian creeds refer to the Holy Spirit as the Lord, the giver of life. When Scripture says that this child is from the Holy Spirit, it is to say that this is a new beginning and that this is a new work of God in the world. Matthew's Gospel begins with a perfectly crafted genealogy that begins with Abraham, goes 14 generations to David, then goes another 14 generations to the Babylonian captivity, then goes another 14 generations to Jesus going through Joseph. It's really well done. Good job, Matthew. But then... Matthew tells this story of Jesus' conception that clearly states that Joseph wasn't involved at all. We might think that this invalidates the genealogy, but I think it does something else. It says that the God who has been faithful to Israel and to humanity from the beginning is doing a new thing. And this thing cannot be interpreted as an advancement in human reasoning or understanding. This is not the, the, the apex of human progress. Humanity can't take credit for this. It is exclusively a gracious work of God. So what does all this have to do with us? What does this mean for our lives and our faith and our salvation? When God comes into the world in Jesus Christ, 
God announces and creates alternative possibilities to the way of the world as it is. God infuses this world with creative possibilities and provides for us the option of a new way, a third way. Jeremiah 31 talks about it this way. Behold, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Instead of the binary of clean-unclean, God ushers in a third way. Instead of a binary of Jew-Gentile, God ushers in a third way. Instead of the cycle of law-sin-atonement, law-sin-atonement, rinse and repeat, God's covenant can be written on our hearts and we can be redeemed as God's people, no longer slaves to sin. And when that salvation takes hold in the world, new possibilities are unleashed. In other places, we see only a binary, third ways can exist. And this has profound impact for how we live our lives on a daily basis. If God is with us, if the Holy, if the Holy Spirit is present with us, giving life and possibility, then there could be more than haves and have-nots. Laws of scarcity say that in order for some people to have an abundance, some people must have not. And economics is based on the fact that goods are finite and there isn't enough. But into the binary of rich-poor, have-have-not, the advent of God's Messiah creates a possibility that everyone could have and everyone could have in abundance. And as Christians, as a church, we are called to witness to these new possibilities by being generous. Social scientists are telling us that our country has never been more divided since the days leading up to the Civil War. Institutions that once held a public trust and united us are now deemed untrustworthy. Social media allows us to create our own echo chambers where we never interact with or hear the views of people who disagree with us. There have been several studies done recently on the impact of social media on the news we consume. And what we are finding is that social media overwhelmingly reinforces your views rather than confronts you with the viewpoints of people different from you. But into the binary of Democrat-Republican, urban-rural, black-white, immigrant-native, the advent of God's Messiah creates the possibility of communities that unite around the one most important thing, Jesus Christ. We can create communities where we listen to and welcome and love people who disagree with us, who are different from us, and love them as children of God. I truly believe that if our culture and our country are to reverse some of the awful trends we have been seeing in the last few months, it will be because of the local church. As Christians, as a church, we are to serve as a witness to an alternative community than those based on political or social or socioeconomic leanings. Salvation has taken hold in our world. Salvation is taking hold in our world. Jesus has come and Jesus is coming to announce new possibilities. God is doing a new thing. And that means new possibilities for us. New things for us. What we need to be willing to do 
in the face of this and as our final preparations for this is to be like Joseph and do strange things. Joseph had two options. Expose Mary to the community or divorce her quietly. God asked Joseph to do a new thing, a strange thing. To stay with her and to trust. What strange thing do you need to do? Whom do you need to befriend? Whom do you need to love? In what ways do you need to be charitable or generous? It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be grand. It might be something small. The poet David White notes that for most of us, the call will not come so grandly, so biblically, but intimately, in the face of the one you know that you have to love. The birth of Jesus announces new possibilities, creates new possibilities. It is itself a new possibility. How will you live into the new possibilities that God is creating in your life this Christmas? Let us pray.